Let's begin by situating this morning's passage, Luke chapter 13, verses 10 through 21, in its wider context. And to do so, we have to go all the way back to chapter 11. There, in chapter 11, you will remember, Jesus began to call out the unbelief of the nation Israel. After the bulk of Jesus' public ministry, after vast amounts of teaching and miracle working, the only conclusion the people could come to about Jesus was to say that he cast out demons by the ruler of demons. Astoundingly, the nation, except for a few, had failed to recognize Jesus' identity. And their failure to understand leads to a series of dire warnings from Jesus. He indicts the children of Israel, calling them a wicked generation, and saying, the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus then proceeds to launch a devastating critique against the religious establishment largely responsible for leading the nation astray. Far from aiding them, Jesus accuses, the scribes and Pharisees hindered those who were entering into the kingdom. They did not do their job, but they had failed. And again, Jesus warns the people, the blood of the prophets shed since the foundation of the world will be charged against this generation. Thus, already in the shadow of judgment, Jesus turns his attention toward his disciples. And he soberly warns them, you remember this from a couple weeks ago, that division and persecution are coming. Chapter 12, verse 52, Jesus says, From now on, five members in one household will be divided, three against two and two against three. On account of him, he warns that the disciples will be drugged before the synagogues and rulers and authorities. Chapter 12, verse 11. He commands them not to fear for their lives, what they will eat, what they will wear, and what they will drink, but to instead remember, chapter 12, verse 32, that their Father has chosen gladly to give them the kingdom. Above all, the disciples must be dressed in readiness, chapter 12, verse 35, prepared to confess Jesus as Lord to the bitter end. For Christ told the disciples, chapter 12, verse 8 and 9, everyone who confesses Jesus before men, the Son of Man will confess Him before the angels of God. But he who denies Jesus before men will be denied before the angels of God. So having admonished His disciples, having prepared them for the coming crisis, Jesus turns His attention back to the crowds for one last appeal. He chides them, 
Verse 56 of chapter 12, you know how to analyze the appearance of the earth and of the sky, but why do you not analyze this present time? Which is to say, God's promised salvation is unfolding in your midst. What the prophets had spoke of, what the law witnessed to, what has been testified to in the Psalms is unfolding right now, but you cannot see it. Fittingly then, Jesus ends his appeal with the parable of the fig tree. Although the fig tree has been barren for three years running, the owner allots it one more year before it's cut down. And the fig tree, of course, is a symbol for the nation Israel. Jesus has come to Israel looking for fruit, but finding none. He should cut them down, but he waits. Thus, as Jesus finishes his appeal to the nation, we are left wondering, will they repent or not? Will they bear fruit or remain barren? The time is drawing near for them to make a decision, and they must choose. And so our passage this morning, Luke chapter 13, verses 10 through 21, is the answer to that question. Is the answer to will the nation repent or not? Jesus performs yet another sign, giving the people yet another chance to discern the present time and to respond appropriately. So let's see how they do. The occasion for our text is the healing of a woman, as Luke phrases it, bent double. Verse 10 says, And he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And there was a woman who for 18 years had a sickness caused by a spirit, and she was bent double and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your sickness And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made erect again and began glorifying God. In healing this woman, as we've noted, Jesus is giving the people another sign. That is, another indicator of who he is and what he is up to. Notice the language that Luke uses. Jesus calls the woman to him and pronounces, You are freed from your sickness, verse 12. Then again, a little later on, Jesus, addressing the synagogue official, says, This woman, a daughter of Abraham as she is, whom Satan has bound for eighteen long years, should she not be released from this bond On the Sabbath day, verse 16, Jesus describes the healing of the woman bent double, literally crippled, as a freeing and releasing from bondage. He describes his work as the work of freeing and releasing this woman, and Again, it's not just bondage in general, but specifically a demonic 
bondage. We are told that the woman's sickness, verse 11, was caused by a spirit. And more explicitly than that, verse 16, Jesus says, Satan had bound her. Though her condition might be treated by modern medicine, that was not its origin. Jesus releases the woman from her demonic bondage by dealing with the spiritual power underlying it at the root of her condition. Now, all this is very important because it's indicative of Jesus' larger mission. Listen to how Jesus describes his mission when he began his public ministry. Quoting the prophet Isaiah, he says, Luke 14, or excuse me, uh, Luke 4, verses 18 and 19, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim, there's our word, release to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. So did you catch the resonance between the language, the language Jesus uses about how he heals this woman, and the language that he uses to describe his mission? The father anointed his son with the Holy Spirit and sent him into the world to release the captives and to set free those who are oppressed. And that purpose is being realized as Jesus frees and releases the woman from her bondage. The healing of the woman bent double is a sign that God's promised salvation is now coming to fulfillment. All of Jesus' miracles, but specifically this one, are designed to help the people recognize that the deliverance they've long awaited is now here. So you see how what he's doing is a sign. He's showing them, this is who I am. This is what I've come to do. But the question remains, will the people read the sign? Will they be able to understand it? And will they respond appropriately? Look at verse 14. It says, But the synagogue official, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, began saying to the crowd in response, There are six days in which work should be done. So come during them and get healed and not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, You hypocrites, does not each one of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead him away to water? And this woman, a daughter of Abraham as she is, whom Satan has bound for eighteen long years, should she not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath day? So, I guess to no one's surprise, they do not respond appropriately. Salvation has come. The poor woman has been dramatically released from her bondage. And all the leader of the synagogue is concerned with is the perceived disrespect of the Sabbath. He promptly interrupts the great joy and reprimands the crowd 
There are six days in which work should be done, so come during them and get healed, and not on the Sabbath day. His response, of course, is a challenge to Jesus' authority. Jesus might think it's permissible to work miracles on the Sabbath, but the synagogue official, master of the Holy Scriptures as he is, knows better. He sternly corrects those present that the woman's healing was a direct violation of the command. This is not of God. Jesus is leading the people astray, and so he interrupts. Now, you can imagine the more religiously devout in the crowd nodding their heads in confident approval. That's right, he is disrespecting the Sabbath. But the Lord responds in authority saying, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey and lead them to the stall for water? And this woman, a daughter of Abraham, who's been suffering for 18 long years, should she not be released from her bondage? Shouldn't she be taken care of? The Lord exposes their blatant hypocrisy. Right? They stand in this position of authority, They stand in this position of interpreter of the law, but Jesus calls them out. The synagogue official and all Jesus' opponents make provision on the Sabbath to care for their animals. And yet here they are trying to restrict this poor woman from getting the care she needs. And it goes to show how greatly Jesus' opponents perverted the Sabbath how far they had strayed from the truth. The Torah teaches that the Sabbath is a day of rest. It is a day when the nation sets aside the burden of their work and labors to rest, just as God rested when he finished his work. How darkly ironic, then, that the religious establishment turned the day intended for rest, into another burden. Atop the Sabbath, they heaped countless stipulations and regulations about about what one can do and what they cannot do. Zealous to observe the letter of the commandment, they disregarded and forgot entirely the spirit of the commandment. Thus, the synagogue official wrongly accused Jesus of breaking the Sabbath when, in fact, he was fulfilling the Sabbath. If the Sabbath is all about removing burdens, if it's all about rest and entering into God's rest, Jesus asks the crowd, should not this woman be freed from the burden that she's groveled under for 18 long years? If this day is about rest, shouldn't this woman have rest? Shouldn't she be able to enter into God's rest like everyone else? And so, in releasing the woman sorely oppressed by demonic activity, Jesus brings to light the true meaning of the Sabbath. This is what the Sabbath means. This is what God intends. Jesus Christ, not the synagogue official, is the Lord of the Sabbath. But 
we cannot stop there. We've seen that the synagogue official was wrong. But what the passage really wants us to consider is why he was wrong. And this is where we move from explaining the passage to addressing it to our own lives. So, why was the synagogue official wrong? Or maybe better to ask, where did he go wrong? And we're given a few clues. Consider first the stark difference between Jesus' example and that of the synagogue official. I'm absolutely struck by the emotion and the tenderness of verse 12. It reads, When Jesus saw her, he called her over. There's no mention of the woman's faith or her desperate cries for deliverance. We're not even sure if she's aware of Jesus. Rather, we're simply told, Jesus saw her. The Lord saw the woman that so many had overlooked and forgotten. While or where others had passed by in complacency and hardness of heart, the Lord saw her in mercy and in compassion. Now contrast Jesus' example. Not even needing a prompting. Not, not even having to be asked, but immediately addressing this woman's need. Contrast that with the synagogue official of his sympathy for her condition, of his gratitude for her healing, of his empathy with her giving praise to God, there is not the slightest hint. This man comes across as the coldest possible person. If Jesus was concerned for the woman, the synagogue official is concerned for the Sabbath. And really, those opposing concerns, Jesus caring about the woman, the synagogue official caring about the Sabbath, tells us all we need to know about why he opposed Jesus. He did so because he turned the Sabbath into an end in and of itself. In other words, he lost sight of the purpose of the commandment. The good to which the commandment was leading... And he turned the commandment itself into that good. Man was never intended to obey the Sabbath for the sake of the Sabbath. But man was given the Sabbath for man's own good. As the Lord says in a different occasion, speaking to the Pharisees, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. God gave the Sabbath to mankind as a gift not as a burden. And what's true for the Sabbath, we should recognize, is also true for the rest of the commandments. God has given us the commandments and commanded our obedience to them, not because He is a lawgiver who demands our servitude, but because He is our Father who desires our good. He commands us with all His authority saying, Have no other gods before me. Honor thy father and mother. Thou shalt not bear false witness. 
and every other command that has been given because in obedience to his word, we will have life as it was meant to be. We will choose the abundant life, the good life in obeying God's commandments. And so, it's so important for us to understand this and to internalize it. God's law is given to us not as our slave master. Not as, it doesn't, he doesn't lord it over us in the commandments. But he's given us his commandments as our tutor or our servant even. For our good and not as a burden. Thus, when we lose sight of God's purpose in giving the commandments, that ultimately and he, he intends them for our blessing, when we lose sight of that, our religion devolves into a heartless servitude to statutes and regulations. Like the synagogue official, we become hopelessly superficial, zealous to honor the commandments, but negligent of their true purpose. Again, just like that synagogue official, a person who's lost sight of that, they have the appearance that they're devout and that they're truly committed to the Lord's cause. But for the actual reason the commands were given, there is no fruit of that in their life. It is no longer about the positive love for God and neighbor, but the negative obedience for the sake of obedience. When we lose sight of what the law is aiming us toward and what it intends for us, the only thing left to do is obey simply for the reason of obeying. When the heart of mercy is removed from someone's obedience, one is left with a lifeless skeleton. As the Apostle Paul says, a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. It's empty. It's lifeless. God doesn't want obedience for the sake of obedience. So, to guard against this danger, the danger we see so clearly demonstrated in the synagogue official, and a danger which I'm sure we all struggle with to one degree or another, we must remember and put it in our heart that all the commandments and disciplines of the Christian life are but a means to an end. All the commandments and disciplines of the Christian life are but a means to an end. Reading and study, prayer and fasting, church attendance and tithing are not the end. Rather, they are means to an end, and the end is love. This is not the end. The end is love. Again, consider St. Paul's words to Timothy. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, he writes to him and tells him, The purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from a sincere faith. Therefore, if one is obedient to the command, religious zeal for the command itself will fade further and further out of view, and love itself will become more and more prominent. In other words, one will look more like Jesus, compassionate and tender, 
than the synagogue official, stern and inflexible. And this is why, ultimately, Jesus came into continual conflict with the scribes and the Pharisees. Remember this contrast we're making. Jesus is truly fulfilling the law by loving. They're just zealous for the law itself and missing love. And this is why there's this contrast, or this conflict, excuse me, that constantly comes up. In their eyes, Jesus was morally slack. They accused him of being a drunkard and a friend of sinners. In truth, we know that he was actually fulfilling the law. But they could only construe it as law-breaking. Because they weren't concerned with the aim of the law, but the law itself, they saw Jesus' actions as law-breaking, when in fact, he was fulfilling the law. Thus, on multiple occasions, Jesus had to confront and address the Pharisees and tell them, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I desire mercy and not this crazy legislation that you're imposing upon everybody about the Sabbath and about all these other commands. Brothers and sisters, what God desires of us ultimately is not a zealous adherence to a set of rules or devout religious observance, but a heart of mercy for sinners and for outcasts. God doesn't want our sacrifice. He wants us to have a heart of mercy. Because, of course, that is the end for which the law was given. The Holy Scripture tells us, Romans chapter 13, verse 10, Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Love is the fulfillment of the law. Thus, our reading and study, uh, it should not be to mark another to-do off the Christian checklist, but it should be to grow in our love for the triune God. Instead of waking up a little bit early to, again, make sure we've done, the, uh, done our duty, rather, we're waking up a little bit early, opening the Bible to grow in our love for the Lord, asking Him, show me who you are and ignite my heart in love for you. Our prayer and fasting, it should not be to prove how devout we are to ourselves and to others, but it should be to grow in our love for our brothers and sisters as we intercede for them, as we lift them up to God. And again, our church attendance and tithing. It should not be custom for the sake of custom, but opportunities to build one another up in love in the company of the believers. That's where we're aiming toward. Whatever we do, whatever we institute, it's all aiming toward that goal of love. Thus, to sum up everything I've been trying to communicate, we should keep the commandments as Jesus keeps the, keeps the commandments and not as the synagogue official. He thinks Jesus is breaking the Sabbath, but in reality, he is fulfilling it in its depths. Jesus, we might say, keeps the commandments as an adult, that is, with an eye toward the weightier matters 
of the law, which are justice and mercy and faithfulness. The synagogue leader, by contrast, he keeps the commandments as a child. Children, we know, are very concerned about keeping the rules and forcing others to keep the rules. But children often keep the rules so rigidly that they actually violate the rules. In other words, they forget, like the synagogue official, that the rules are not ends in and of themselves, but they're to lead us to something greater. Now, to begin, we might start by obeying the commandments as children, freshly out of the world, learning to walk as it were, our moral senses not being as attuned as we'd like. We need to keep our hands firmly gripped to the guardrails, identifying the boundaries and keeping ourselves far from them. But as we mature, as a believer grows and finds their legs, they won't need to rely on the guardrails. That need will diminish as they become more rooted in love. Love will change from an outward set of commands to an inner power that pervades all their actions. As adults, again, with our legs under us, we will not have to be slavishly obedient to the letter of the law as the synagogue official, but we will be free to fulfill the law in its truest sense as Jesus did. And then one day, not in this life, but in the age to come, when we've reached our maturity, the outward law will fade from existence. And in fact, it's fading from existence right now because the Holy Spirit is writing the law on our hearts. It's something by His power that's coming from the inside. And thus, when we're fully perfect, we won't need to be taught to love. We won't need commandments. We won't need instruction because love will be perfected in us. So, to sum up, let us obey as adults, not as children. Not concerned for the law itself, but concerned to which the law aims. Now, that doesn't mean we throw away the law. We still need moral training, and then we have the law as a guide. We also reference back to it to make sure our love is true and right. It's not just love for the sake of love, but we have the law as a direction, but not as an end in itself. The law is a tutor. So, after thoroughly humiliating his opponents and everyone in the crowd rejoicing at Jesus doing so, the Lord wraps up with two parables. He says in verse 18, What is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and threw into his own garden, and it grew and became a tree. And the birds of the air nested in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven, which a woman took and hid three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. Though at first... The two parables don't seem to fit the context. On second look, they do. The kingdom of God, Jesus says, is like a mustard seed. Though being insignificant, eventually it grows into a tree that fills the entire garden and gives shade to the birds. 
He says the kingdom of God is also like leaven. Only a very little bit of leaven is needed to permeate and raise a whole lot of flour. The point of both parables is much the same. Though the kingdom of God may start small, like a mustard seed, like a little bit of leaven, it will not end that, it will not end that way. It will end when one day it is grown to encompass the entire earth. So how then does Jesus' teaching about the kingdom of God and the woman who was healed relate to one another? I think Jesus speaks the parables as if to say, in such signs as this, the healing of the woman who was crippled, the power of the kingdom of God is seen. And even though it's tiny and unrecognizable, taking place in the farthest reaches of the Roman Empire, it is evidence that something tremendous is in progress, something far greater than we can imagine. In other words, the woman's healing, in the woman's healing, we are given a foretaste of the world to come, of the way things will be when the kingdom of God reaches maturity. The freedom Jesus gives her is a sign of the freedom to come. Almost a parable. As it stands, the entire cosmos is subject to futility and corruption. Like the woman, every living thing is bent double underneath the weight of Satan's dominion. Instead of the glorious freedom that God intends for his creation, the whole mass of humanity is crippled by chronic violence and strife, unable, like the woman, to straighten up at all. And throughout history, we've tried to straighten ourselves up through nations and empires, through statesmen and mystics, through education and war. But in the end, all our efforts have only served to worsen our condition. But God sent His Son. And as Jesus has done for the woman, He's done for all. He sees our incurable disease, calls us to Himself, lays His hands on our shoulders and pronounces You are freed from your sickness. Satan who bound us is himself bound. And Jesus claims the throne. Thus little by little, day by day, we are straightening up. We're growing up into the full stature of Jesus Christ. We're laying off the old man and we're putting on the new man. Until one day... As the Apostle Paul says, Romans chapter 8, verse 21, the creation itself, notice the language, will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That woman is a picture of the entire universe one day. Though it is long bent double, it will be released and set free into freedom. And so while we await that glorious day, let's not despise the smaller glories around us. Though we look for the kingdom and we long for the coming peace, we cannot forget that it starts as an insignificant mustard seed with the man forsaken and crucified. That's the way God works. And so it is in us. 
So though we might be impatient with our sparing and inconsistent growth, though we might be frustrated that things are not unfolding the way we envisioned, that everything around us seems like a little bit of leaven or a tiny mustard seed, we should not fall into despair. Because God's work, though it often seems to us pedestrian and a very small thing, is in fact the beginning of something greater than our minds can encompass. We're just in the very beginning stages of the little seed beginning to sprout. And so you're frustrated. Why am I not growing? Why aren't things the way I want them to be or the way God says they should be? Well, you have to remember that mustard seed is barely beginning to grow. One day, it will fill the entire garden. You'll be a mighty tree. The kingdom of God will encompass the earth. But that one day isn't yet. And so we grow little by little, bit by bit. The sun isn't always shining so that we have all the nutrients. The water isn't always pouring so that we get what we need. But we are growing. And so, as we prepare our hearts to observe the Lord's Supper, we remember that in the bread and the cup, that it too is a sign of things to come. That as we partake this morning, we partake with the assurance that we will one day find ourselves in the kingdom of God. Again, though that seems so far out, the Lord's Supper is assurance that we will be there. So I encourage, as we partake this morning, let's partake in hope, believing that though the outer man is decaying, the inner man is being renewed day by day. Though the outward signs are not always present, that we are indeed being transformed into the image of Christ. That though we do not yet see the kingdom of God, it is operating powerfully in our midst, even now. Though we are beset by various trials and temptations, we partake in hope, And assurance, knowing that God is faithful and that he who begun a good work, he who begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus.